Fred, you worked up a sweat on that one, man. That was good stuff, huh? Let's hear it. Good work, choir. They even did the old switcheroo. We're like, we're, we're finished? Wait, no, gotcha. So that was good stuff. And some of y'all clapped. The rest of y'all okay? We got somebody back there flipping through the bylaws. Can we do that? So, good deal, man. Um, last Sunday, for those of you who were here, I made the mention for my friend who was in need uh, of food. And just to give you a report back on that, folks were coming by all afternoon uh, to my place last week. There are even some of y'all that were that are in the like uh, service to the Lord special forces, and you parachuted into I think Kroger's and Food Lion before you even ate lunch, and there was food here in the kitchen. There was so much food that it filled up the entire trunk of my Toyota Camry. And I had to put some in the front seat. So if you saw a little white car listening to Hillsong, bumping and dragging, going across Rocky Mount last Sunday night, that was your pastor. So I called him to make sure he was home. And he, you know, we, we coordinated that. And so when I went there, I said, I need you to come out, you know, and give me a hand with this stuff. And all he thought is Jeff's going to bring me some groceries which for those of you who know my gifts and food, that would be very sparse. All right, can I get an amen? Okay, it'd be pretty, pretty shallow food action there. And, and when, I, when I popped the trunk, right? Now he's expecting, because I said, I can give you some food. And, the, and he sees all of that food. I thought he was going to say shalom, but he kind of stopped. He who has ears, let him hear. Y'all, y'all awake this morning? All right, he was just blown away and speechless. And just, he said, man, this means so much. I, and I, I told him, I was like, look, this is not for me. This is from the church. And this is a testimony to how much they love the Lord and how much they love people. So I just want to thank you guys for bringing awesomeness and being, bringing love for people for their physical needs to a whole new level. And he even gave me a call this past week. So I think very often... When you meet people's physical needs, right, they're a lot more apt to listen to you explain the gospel. So I just want to thank you. And let's just give the Lord a thank offering this morning for your faithfulness. And uh, I may need new shocks. All right. So um, that was that was just anyway. All right. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to look at a message this morning entitled, Baptism by Fire. We're looking at John the Baptist and his ministry and his life. What I think we're going to do this morning here is we're just going to read verses 15 through 22. Then we're going to kind of backstep and just work through it verse by verse. And our main idea is very simple this morning. You say, now Jeff, what is baptism by fire? What does that mean? We're going to talk about that, but our driving thought this morning is simply this. It's your choice. It's your choice. Well, notice verse 15. Let's, let's, let's read this. The Bible says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, notice this phrase, and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, in other words, he had, he had taken his brother's wife to be his own, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, quote, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Now imagine if you were there. Imagine if you had gone out into the wilderness, out into the area to where there were scorpions, where there was not much water. It was the wilderness. It was a place to where people didn't go unless you had to. And you heard John speak and preach, and it was hardcore stuff. And remember his description, he would have been clothed with camel's hair, and his food was locust and honey. And you heard this preaching, and then it was like, man, we've never heard anything like this before. So that's why people in verse 15, they're waiting the expectations saying, man, could this guy be the Messiah, the Son of God? I mean, can you, can you imagine? Now, think, think about it. For us, we look back and we say, well, the Messiah is Jesus, right? We got that Sunday school answer? All right, Jesus, the Son of God. But if you were then, Jesus hadn't come yet. You were actually thinking, could this be God in the flesh? Could this literally be God's chosen Messiah to redeem the whole world? Wow, what a question. It's kind of like that, 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 that spirit of expectation. Something awesome is about to happen. The only thing that I think that we can identify with is when you were a kid and it was Christmas Eve. Remember that? Night. And it seemed like the night would go forever and you're just wondering and guessing what is in those presents. And some of you bad kids, you went and you got that little razor blade and you cut open the packaging and you opened it up and you looked at it. Some of y'all are being convicted by the Lord right now. And then on Sunday, you're this the type you're like, I can't wait to see it. And then on, on Christmas morning, you open up, wow, thanks mom and dad for this gift. I am so surprised. There's a spirit of expectation like, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Now, now notice, this is very, very interesting that everybody, when it was all said and done, except for just a few, a small handful of people got it wrong. You say, Jeff, what did they get wrong? They got Jesus wrong. You know that when Jesus actually did what the Bible said he was going to do, which is to die a death on a cross, to be tortured to death, most everybody left. The Jewish establishment did not believe that he was the Messiah. So if all of those people who knew the Bible inside and out, they got Jesus wrong, then the question for us is, where do we get our view from Jesus? What, what is your view of Jesus? Where does it come from? You know, some people have been raised in church and they say, well, I just believe what my pastor or priest, priest tells me about Jesus. What are some dangers with that? Well, a lot. 
You know, there's a survey done, I think it was back in 2008, and it was 49% of the clergy in the United States does not have a biblical worldview. That's across the board, all churches, biblical worldview like the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, doesn't mean it just contains the Word of God with errors, but that it is the Word of God. 49%, there's, there's a lot who don't believe that. There's a lot of preachers today who will say things like, well, Jesus is a way to heaven, but He's not the way to heaven. You see how that could get dangerous? Because if Jesus is a way to heaven, then really, why do we do missions, you know? Why don't, why don't we just tell Buddhists, why don't you just be a good Buddhist and tell Muslims, just be a good Muslim and so forth and so on. But if Jesus is who he said he was, then he's the only way to get to God. So I would encourage you um, to do something that um, Francis Chan, we've, we've talked about this before, to in this, if you want to start now, that'd be greater. If you want to put a New Year's resolution to start in the new year, okay, just like New Year's resolutions, usually the gyms are filled up the first month. And after that, it's ghost town. All right? Except for those people who've had a really, really bad day at work. Here's a great resolution for those of you who've been in church, especially for a long time. To pick up the New Testament and to read it like it's the first time that you've ever read it. So that whatever you read and whatever the plain meaning is, that's what you believe that the Bible says. You know what? The Jesus of the Bible sometimes is very different than the Jesus that is presented in many churches. Right? Right? Remember the verse that we looked at last week when Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Right? When you went and visited people in prison, you did it unto me. When you gave food to people who didn't have it, you did it to me. When you helped people um, who were sick, you did it unto me. Basically, the people who can't do anything with you in return. So then, then we ask ourselves, then, then why is a lot of that lacking in church life in general today? Is the Jesus that we worship and the Jesus that we believe exists actually the Jesus of the Bible? And if these people could get it wrong, it's very possible that we in the 21st century could get Jesus wrong. Sometimes people think Jesus is just a nice guy. Have you ever gotten that picture? Maybe from some of those Jesus movies? Like Jesus is just running around, hugging everybody, saying, I'm love, 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 and I need some friends, right? Like Jesus is some type of a pseudo-hippie. Jesus is none of that. In fact, Jesus has some very, very... In fact, in next week, we're going to start looking at the temptations of Jesus, the temptation of Christ. We're going to look in the weeks that follow. Some of the things that Jesus says causes you to be like, whoa, that is heavy stuff. I encourage you. Why don't you start today? Just go home tonight and just begin to read the Bible. Maybe just take one chapter a day and plug through it, the New Testament, and say, I'm going to simply read it And I'm going to forget what people have told me that I should believe about it and just read it and let the text speak to me. And I guarantee it will rock your world. Because sometimes we, 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 and it's from well-meaning people sometimes, people say stuff, well, what Jesus is really saying, be careful. Have you ever noticed sometimes in sermons or even Sunday school lessons that when people say, now, now, we don't want to misunderstand Jesus. What he's actually saying here is, and the explanation is like a super watered down version of what the plain text actually says. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? Stuff like that. He who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which for us would be like carrying around a, uh, what, what is it, like a lethal injection board or something like that, and follow me. Jesus does stuff like he saves his life, 
for his own sake will lose it. That means if you live for yourself, you're a loser. And when you die, your life will be a total waste. But Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake, the same shall find it. Why don't we hear a lot about that today? You think that it could be? Do you think there's a possibility that there's the temptation for us to reinvent Jesus as a white, middle class, nice, upstanding American who simply says, go to church, be nice to your neighbor, and sing hymns and praise songs to me, and simply don't cuss too much? For our thinkers, go with me on this and we're going to move on. These people, most of whom had heard the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, from the time that they were small. Many of these people had huge sections of the Bible memorized. And yet, they misidentified Jesus. So please don't take my word for who Jesus is. Don't take your Sunday school teacher's word for who Jesus is, as nice and as, as, as biblical as they may be. Go to the New Testament and read it through. We all good on that? All right? We're clear? So where do we get our view from Jesus? Our Jesus right? From the text. Amen, church? Right? We are people of the book, not the people of imagination. So notice there um, in verse 15 that uh, they're asking, you know, who is this guy? And in verse 16, John just kind of, he just kind of levels with them. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And notice the description that he gives of how mighty Jesus is going to be. He says, I'm not even worthy to undo the strap on his sandal. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of Jesus. You know what Paul talks about being a bond slave, a bond servant of Christ? You know what he's literally talking about? He's saying that we are slaves of Jesus. Now in America, we don't like slavery, right? Except for some of you are like, man, you know, growing up, I was a slave. My mom's like, do your chores and do them now. Right? You don't mop, you don't eat. Okay? You experienced a little bit of slavery there. But, but sometimes, for us, we, 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 we hear these words and like, okay, so if I, a, a slave? Seriously? Like a servant of God? Do you realize that it is an incredible honor and privilege to be able to serve the one who created you? Amen? You ever notice that when you, I'm talking about good dogs. You know, a good dog, when you come in, a good dog loves to be with its master. It can't wait. That's the source of the dog's joy. If the master is angry, the dog tucks its tail. If the master is just saying, oh, good boy, good girl, and don't use that three-letter curse word, B-A-D, to the dog. That is just anathema to them. If the dog is just goes hyper and goes crazy because the master approves of the dog. Man, what a great picture, Amen? What a great picture when John says, look guys, you think that this is impressive, the preaching that has brought about repentance? I'm not even worthy to lose the sandal strap. Wow. That's a picture of humility, church. You know, sometimes we think that we have to have we have to have a certain um, title or position to influence people. You know, often throughout the Bible, God used very humble means to bring about great results, didn't he? Very humble means. You know, um, when, I, when I started out, I, I was in law school. 
Um, when, I, when I graduated high school, and I, I got into this law school, and it was very interesting. When I got saved at age 19, and I transferred to start to studying the Bible and going to the ministry, before, <clears throat> when I was in law school, sometimes I would meet people, and it would be like this. You meet the moms, and it's very easy to tell when a mom has a mission, right? Oh, you're in law school? Honey, this is Jeff, right? It's like the mom approval nod. He's in law school. And you're just like awkwardly standing there. Okay, well, I'll let you talk. And then, you know, they just like walk off. Which was translated is this guy may be Mr. Moneybags. I heard a statement by John Piper last night. He was, he was telling about a, a, a missionary who had done a lot of work in Pakistan. This was in a, in a forum in front of 9,000 students. And he's talking about the issue of race, uh, racism and so forth. And someone asked the question, say, what if you're, this guy's a white guy from the U.S., what if your daughter fell in love with a Pakistani? What would you do? And he said, I would rather that my, that my daughter marry a Pakistani believer than a rich, white, lost American banker. For some of y'all, that's, that's hitting at different levels. You know what it was like once I got, went into the ministry, you meet people? Say, so what do you do? Or what are you studying? Well, I'm studying to be a, a preacher. People are trying to find words. And you usually hit something like this. Well, I'm glad that you found something that makes you happy. <laughs> right? Which means, loser. It's hilarious, the reactions of people. You know, I thought, I said, man, how does the world look at that? You know, when John's saying, I'm not worthy to be even, even be his lowest slave. Um, I heard one pastor tell an incredibly moving story about this hardened atheist who just kept rejecting Christ, kept rejecting Christ, and they got him to finally come to church. By the way, if you know... We're not going to ask for a show of hands. If you know angry atheists, um, there may be, and I hope that, that this is not you, there may be the, the, the fallen desire in you to provoke them. Okay? Things such as, well, you may, may not believe it now. One day you will. Booyah! You die. No more atheist. And kind of give them some Baptist smackdown, right? A little news flash. That doesn't work. Okay. But I would encourage you to challenge intellectual atheists. Say, okay, well, why don't you come to my church and I've got a crazy pastor. Just come and listen and then dissect the logic of the sermon. Say, my pastor would love to have you show him how God doesn't exist. I love doing that with atheists. Because the burden of proof is on them, okay? Somebody ever says, well, prove to me that God exists. Say, well, why don't you prove to me that God doesn't exist? Because it seems to me like there's things that work, trees that grow, people who procreate, wounds that heal, so forth and so on. There's some amount of design in this world. And out of all the chances, it's very small that there would be something that actually work at all, right? Take junk and throw it together. I mean, even the greatest redneck can't, you know, put a bunch of junk together, throw it and say, I've got a car, right? 
This atheist comes to church. There's a, a, a boy with Down syndrome. The boy walked up and said in his voice, Sir, you need Jesus. The man didn't know what to do. After the sermon, the boy walked back up to the man and said, Sir, you need Jesus. This pastor tells a story. It said that God just used a Down syndrome boy to break down the walls of that atheist heart and he gave his life to Christ. Don't ever think that you have to spar intellectually with people. Amen, church? We still do apologetics. We still definitely think, okay? When you come here, if you checked your brain at the door, you have permission to go and get it and bring it back and put it in, all right? We don't check brains at the door here. But neither do we rely upon the power of ourselves. You know, that, that's the thing about the gospel. When, when John begins to break this argument down in verse 17, by the way, this is going to be like scary sermon part two here in about 30 seconds. But when he begins to do this, we say phrases like, I'm not ashamed, Romans 1.16, all right, Bible people, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is actually the power of the gospel? Is it the power within the gospel? Is the power of the gospel itself? It is. It's not us. So if you're trying to witness to people, if you're trying to pray for people, understand that it is the power of God and not your power. And notice what he says right here in verse 17. Actually, the last part of verse 16. He says, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is speaking. Let me give you two uh, ways to understand this. All right. People say, what in the world is going on? Verse 16, Luke chapter 3 of baptism, the Holy Spirit and with fire. Holy Spirit, if you want to write this down in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, also Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Acts 1, 8, the Bible says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, when the Holy Spirit comes at a time called Pentecost, Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. The disciples were there. And what happened is God, well, I'll read you the text, Luke chapter 2, verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. little freaky? Little tongues of fire resting on people. Everybody's like, whoa, what is going on? Notice verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice in Acts chapter 2, if you want to go back and read that, that when they spoke in tongues, these tongues were understood by people who didn't normally speak those languages. So the purpose of God giving them the gift of tongues there was not for a static utterance. Say, Jeff, what's an ecstatic utterance? Uh, you, we know that it, it has gibberish, right? The person begins to just talk and da 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 and there's no real connection, there's no real language. That's not what the Bible is talking about at all. What it's talking about is you had people from all over the world And God gave them the ability to speak and that they were understood. Like if you were a person who spoke some sub-African tribal dialect, you would be able to hear in your own language. Why? Well, all those people weren't in Jerusalem to stay. When they were there to hear the message, where did they go? They went H-O-M-E. So they took the gospel where they went. It's an incredible testimony of the power of God. So... When it says that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit, it refers to Pentecost, but notice the baptism with also fire. And he explains it. This is what he's talking about, verse uh, verse 17. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. Now, winnowing fork is a tool that would have been taken to throw the grain up into the air and, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. It would separate the substance from the whole. So what he's saying is that when Jesus comes, Jesus will give an absolute separation of the saved and the lost. Notice here, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. So what he's saying is that when Jesus comes in judgment, he's to bring all the saved to heaven and he's supposed to, well, notice here, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's your choice to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You say, Jeff, what about the gift of tongues today? Could God still give the gift of tongues? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to see what the original intention was, right? The original intention was to communicate with people that you didn't know their language. Most of us speak in uh, English in here. Some speak redneck tribal dialect, all right? We can all understand each other for the most part, okay? So, according to Acts chapter 2, there's no need for us to speak in tongues because we have the tongue, the language. And by the way, the words in the New Testament for tongues, never they don't refer to gibberish, they refer to known languages. One of the words is dialectos, where we get, this is so cool, where we get our English word dialect. Wow! And the other word is glossa, for tongue. If you read old English translations of anything, they would say to the, the gift of tongue, or the gift of simply speech, to be understood and communicated. Matthew Henry said this, If it serve not for fruit to the honor of His glory, let it serve for fuel to the honor of His justice. Then notice the phrase that he uses here for unquenchable fire. It is exactly that. Unquenchable fire. Some people say that hell will go for a little while, but then it will be extinguished. That's not what the Bible says. Remember um, when I was in high school, we had a camp out a few days after um, Christmas. We went around the neighborhood and we got a bunch of Christmas trees. Have you ever burned a Christmas tree? You know, once they get a little bit dry, boy, those jokers go up like they've got gas in them, don't they? And so we got about 25 to 30 Christmas trees. Yes. And put them all in the big pile. And we were camping on this little isthmus uh, on a pond. And then we, we lit it. And I'm not, this is not a preacher's story. We had to stand back 20 or 30 feet because the heat was so intense. And I began to think, I began to think, if an earthly fire is that hot and that unbearable, then what must it be like in hell? The Bible says he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That means that it will never, ever, ever go out. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, on every chain in hell is written the word forever. When they look up, their their eyes see the word forever. Hell is forever. So when sometimes we get get nervous and we get intimidated by people, let us know. Let us remember that people who die, listen to me, without Jesus Christ, they go to a place called hell and it is forever. And that's why we do what we do. Amen, church? 
That's why we love people. That's why we give to missions. That's why we care. That's why we teach. That's why we preach so that people don't have to go. I love John 3.16, right? For whoever believes shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. It's incredible. Notice how the narrative goes further. In verse 18, he, he preached with many other exhortations. Hop over to verse 21. Jesus is baptized here. Now, now some people have asked, now Jeff, why in the world would Jesus be baptized? I thought this was a baptism of repentance. I thought that people, when they got baptized, they were showing I've done wrong. And so I know that Jesus is the Son of God. Does this mean that Jesus had something to repent of? No. This is in your outline. Let me give you uh, two reasons why the Bible tells us Jesus was baptized. Number one, it was to identify with the message of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, it was kind of like he was carrying the baton. He was carrying the torch from the Old Testament prophets. And he was going to hand it to Jesus. And Jesus was the final fulfillment of God's plan. So when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus was telling everybody John the Baptist was legit, right? He's like, this guy's for real. Everybody's like, well, if Jesus does it, then I should probably do it. Okay, if you haven't been baptized and you claim to be a follower of Christ, come forward in the invitation. We'll set up a time to baptize you. Say, now Jeff, can a person be saved and not be baptized? I don't know. I do know in the New Testament, it's very interesting that whenever people get saved in the book of Acts, they ask to be baptized then. It's not, it's not a type of thing of, well, God, let me give you my rules on when and how and if. It's simply, God, I'm ready to follow you. The second reason is to picture his future death. Here's a few Old Testament uh, pictures. There's one in Psalm 42.7, one in Jonah 2.3. And then Luke chapter 12, verse 50, I would especially note this text. And here's what it says. This is Jesus. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Can you imagine that hanging over your head your whole life? Knowing that one day you're going to go to the cross? I mean, that's bad enough. How many of you have seen uh, The Passion of the Christ? Let me, let me see your hands. Incredibly horrific movie, Right? You see the beating? But you know that that really wasn't the whole point of, of the crucifixion. It was the fact that God had placed all of His wrath upon Jesus and Jesus was separated from Him. It was at that point that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. Let me give you a few application points before we go into our Lord's uh, Supper. Number one, here's an action point. Here's how this applies to our life. Jesus' fame and not my own is the source of my joy. If we could fast forward to John chapter 3, we would find that John is John the Baptist is there in prison. And his disciples come to him and they say, you remember that guy Jesus? He said, yeah. Well, Jesus is baptizing, so what do we think about Jesus? And John the Baptist says in verse 30, or the last part of verse 29, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Do you know one of the greatest ways to alleviate yourself from being depressed and being down is to align your joy with Jesus. Amen? It's like when, when, when Jesus' name is noticed and when Jesus' cause is advanced, that's what I get excited about. 
Went to the Liberty game uh, with some friends a few weeks ago. And it was so... Did I tell you guys about that? Oh man, we sat in the student section. You talk about energy, man. You didn't sit down the whole game and it was incredible. I've heard that the Hokie games are fun too. You ever been to a game? I was in, I think it was 1996 or 1997. LSU at LSU versus the Florida Gators. There was some serious hatred in that, right, in that stadium. And LSU upset the Gators. And I mean, everybody just charged the field and security is like, look, we've got like, 60, 90,000 drunk Cajuns. We're just going to stand here. You know, there's, there's no holding back. They tore down the goalposts. There's an incredible amount of joy. And when the Bible speaks of joy, can you imagine John the Baptist being in prison? He's there and he knows he's probably going to die. And he says, my joy is complete because Jesus' name is known. That's incredible stuff. You say, okay, now Jeff, I know I should have my joy connected with Jesus and his fame, and his glory, but how do I actually do that? Let me give it two ways. Invest your time, invest your money. Begin to invest your life in serving people, serving with the gospel. If you begin to give, notice we want to see how our money is doing. Give to missions. That's the way that we, that we get plugged in. Secondly, there is freedom in humility. Now, imagine if we had been John the Baptist and all of these crowds had come out to hear us. I want you to think back into your life when people notice that you did something good, they're like, well, I don't know if that's ever happened. It has. You may have forgotten. And that feeling of, yes, people notice that I did something awesome. They notice that I fixed this car or did that game-winning shot or, or hacked this computer or built this house or whatever. And it's just, or, or I'm driving my new car, Right? Like, who's up? What's up? This guy, this girl, and this is what's going on. And we had that sense of being noticed. Humility is when we come to the place to where we say, Jesus, I want you to be noticed. Now, the interesting thing about humility is be very careful because the second that you begin to say, you know what? I've done pretty good at being humble today. What are we? Rightful. Let me give you a quote on C.S. Lewis. He says this in the screw tape letters. Catch a man at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride at his own humility will appear. Now, what is humility? Some people say, now, John the Baptist is talking about he's not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. Humility is not saying I'm a good-for-nothing piece of trash. I've known some Christians and they think that what God wants them to do is tell everyone that God made junk. God doesn't make junk. You are not trash. You're not. I know sometimes people have been told things, but you're not. You are an awesome, fearful creation of God. But simply, humility is coming to the place of saying that everything I have of worth can be attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you three more and we'll pick these up next week. Following Jesus means not editing His message. Following Jesus may mean looking awkward and even experiencing persecution. Finally, obedience to God produces harmony in your relationship with Him. John the Baptist... He was killed by Herod. 
But Jesus said later that John the Baptist, there was not a man born among women greater than he was. Now can you imagine John the Baptist in his final day? The soldiers come in and they're mocking him. They're saying if you would have just kept your mouth shut, you would have kept your skin. But John the Baptist understood that his job was to proclaim the truth. Now we here in the good old U.S. of A., at least right now, we're not in danger of life or limb if we tell people the truth. But the question is, if it comes to that, will we be willing to be John? Or would we be someone who edits the Word of God? I pray that if that day comes, that we will have church in jail. Y'all with me? If it comes to the point to where they say, you can't say this, you can't speak the truth, you can't even speak the truth in love, then may it be that we love God and love people so much that we will be willing to tell them the truth, even if it costs us our life. 